This morning we're going to be bringing our sermon series that we've been um, in the middle of for the last several weeks from Romans chapter 8 to a conclusion. Uh, We started this series, as you recall, on Pentecost Sunday. And so we've been sort of basking in the glory of Pentecost and what Pentecost means for your life and for my life over these last several weeks um, by, by looking at this chapter of chapters as we have uh, identified it here, this uh, incredible passage that talks about life in the Spirit. Who, by the way, as you see on the, the front of your bulletins there, is a foretaste of our inheritance for eternity to come. Now that we come to this end of this chapter, we come to this grand conclusion where Paul focuses on the love of God that not only creates, that not only saves, and that not only sanctifies, but also carries us through from beginning to end. We look to the love of God through it all. So turn with me, if you would, again, one last time to Romans chapter 8. If you have a guest Bible, we're on page 909 uh, for the fourth week in a row. We've kind of been camping out right here, and we're going to be back here this one last time. And we're going to finish out the chapter beginning in verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, Who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will then condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute, or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You and I have all known people in our lives who have really great, sort of a really great intellect or really great book sense, as we like to call it. They're really smart people. They, They remember things. They're great at critical thinking. They retain everything that they hear. But sometimes you find people like that who lack wisdom, don't we? Don't they? They lack wisdom or they lack common sense. It's like they get all the heady stuff, all the the esoteric things. They can grapple with ideas, but when it comes to just day-to-day life, they're just utterly clueless. Well, Paul, 
is not (laughs) one of those people. Now, you spend two minutes reading Paul, and it doesn't take long at all to detect his incredible intellect. I mean, truly, Paul, Paul was indeed perhaps one of the smartest people in the history of the, of the world, if you really take the time to get to know him. It's, a, it's an incredible, brilliant mind that God gave this man uh, for, the, for the church. But he wasn't just some egghead out of touch with reality. He wasn't detached from uh, things on the ground, so to speak. He understood what was going on in the lives of people. He was a, a, a person like everyone else, like you and I. I wonder if, if Paul had been a, a good Southerner, if maybe he would say something like, Mama didn't raise no fool. I wonder if Paul would say something like that. And that's what we say when, when we're trying to say, you know, I'm not out of touch with what's going on. I know what's going on. I'm aware of things. And Paul knows that these things that he's saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows that these are deep challenging things to say. He knows this is a mountaintop experience. And, and we say, well, thank you, Paul. Thank you for bringing us to the mountaintop. We, we appreciate the, the lofty heights you've brought us to, but we tend to live lives somewhere down the valley, don't we? We don't always live life up here on the mountaintop. And it feels, if, we, if, if, if we're not careful, that when we spend our time up here, we're detached from the way things really are. And Paul says, I get that. But more importantly, I think the Holy Spirit gets that. And so we have this incredible chapter that takes us to lofty heights, but then we come to these verses at the end that give us some context, that, that give us that, that other side of the, of the coin, so to speak, that we need to fill out the truths here that are being communicated to the people who are in a journey in the already but not yet. Right? God has done, if you belong to Christ, if you are a Christian today, God has done something that has marked your life for eternity. He has begun something in you. And you also know that what he has started, he has not yet finished. And if you think you are a finished product now, you do not understand the life of, the, you don't understand the Christian life at all. He, he started something in you and he will finish something in you, but you are between what has started and what has not yet culminated. And it is in this sort of in-between that we find ourselves, and Paul and God are not unaware of what that's like. And so we have this reassurance in the end of this passage that the hope which sustains us through the genuine sufferings and the genuine groanings of life in this world between the already and the not yet, those hopes are not, that's not an uncertain hope, is it? No, it is one that is grounded in the steadfast love of God. So let's take a few moments here together and, and break this passage down and look at some of the ideas that we find here. Look, look at the first one here. In the first verses there, uh, 28 through 30, we see, and if you're a note taker, here's your first point. There is purpose in God's designs. There is purpose in God's designs. Where does Paul go back in history to locate the origins of our salvation. Well, it's not the cross. It's it's not the manger. It's not the prophets. It's not all the way back in the Davidic kingdom or the nation of Israel or even the Exodus or Moses or even Abraham. No, Paul reaches back all the way into the eternal purposes of God from before all time. That's where salvation history begins. It's there where we discover what he calls in verse 28, God's purpose. There was 
purpose and intentionality and meaning in what God did when he created his world. But all too often, those who come from different sort of theological traditions, we come to a passage like this, and, and we, we hear verse 28, and we're all on the same page. We love verse 28. God has purpose. God is at work. God is doing something. Everything has meaning. And then we get to verse 29, and then we all start, you know, getting on each other's case, and, and, and we have our debates, and we get bogged down in, in the weeds, so to speak. And I, I have no interest in getting bogged down in anything today. But I do think it's worth making a couple of notes here about verses 29 and 30. All too often, we allow this discussion about the doctrines of election and predestination to be framed the wrong way. We, we say, well, that's a reformed doctrine, or that's a, a Calvinist doctrine. They believe in election and predestination, but we're Wesleyan Arminians. We don't, well, that's ridiculous. Because the doctrines of election and predestination are not Reformed doctrines or Calvinist doctrines. They are biblical doctrines. All right, so let's just say from the onset here that this is a a biblical teaching. We just read what Paul said here in these verses. It's not something that, that John Calvin inserted into the scriptures somehow and gets to claim credit for it. Not at all. But because we are not from exactly the same theological tradition as some of our other brothers and sisters in Christ, we come from a different theological heritage. We, we read the same scriptures, but we interpret them a little differently. We, we understand them a little differently than our Reformed brothers and sisters do. And the simplest way that I could boil down that difference for the sake of our time here this morning is to say this. And I hope that you can, you can connect with what I'm trying to say here and that you see the relevance of it here this morning. The simplest way to understand the difference pertaining to this doctrine, is this. We do not hold that God elects or chooses for salvation according to his will, but rather according to his foreknowledge. Okay, I'm going to explain what that means. Not according to his will, but according to his foreknowledge. If God elected from eternity past, who would be saved and who would not be saved according to his will, well then, everyone would be saved. Right? Is that what, not what the, the scriptures say repeatedly time and time throughout? First Timothy 2.4. God wants what? A few to be saved. What does it say? God wants everyone to be saved. God wants everyone to understand the truth. Or what about 2 Peter 3.9? God does not want his elect to be destroyed? No. God does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. Go back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18, 23. This is the Lord himself saying, do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Of course not. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. No, I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Jesus himself, as he looked at Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37, oh, Jerusalem, hear the cry of the Lord. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. It's clear to me from these verses and elsewhere in the scriptures, the whole tenor of the scriptures, that God desires, that God even wills that all would be saved and that none would perish. And so God doesn't elect according to his will. But as Paul says here, according to his foreknowledge, 
Right there in verse 29, look at it again. It's plain as day. God knew his people in advance, and therefore he chose them to become like his son. Peter says the same thing at the beginning of his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. In other words, God, in his foreknowledge, knows who will respond to his gracious invitation to receive grace. And when they do that, they become elect. It's, it's quite plain to me, at least. Maybe it's not plain to you, but it is to me. But the deeper question here is not who's right or who's wrong in this debate, because that's not my heart at all. I'm not here to, to, to prove a point that, <laughs> that we have a better understanding or, or whatever. My point is, what is the scripture saying to us here this morning? And I believe that the language here in this chapter, within its context, has a purpose. And it's, it's not for us to, to debate. And I don't think it's telling us that God, you know, unilaterally, single-handedly predetermines all things. And that the, you know, free will is just some illusion. It's just we have the appearance of free will. But in the end, God determines all things. So it's not really free will after all. I don't think that's the purpose of the, of the scripture here at all. I think the purpose here is to demonstrate that in, in the, the entirety of salvation history, God had a purpose in mind when he started. He had an end. There was a goal. He didn't begin with some sort of like uns, unscripted outcome. You know, I'll start things, I kind of have an idea of what I'd like to see happen, but you know, it's kind of out of my hands and I'm kind of hoping that it goes this. No, God had an end in mind from the beginning. And what is that end? Well, Paul says it in verse 24. I'm sorry, 29 to conform people into the image of his son. That is the purpose of election. That is, what pre, that is what the elect are predestined to, to become like Jesus. And Paul is convinced that the God who intends is the God who fulfills. I hope that brings comfort to your heart today. <laughs> We're in the midst of this this high chapter that's talking about life in the spirit and this journey from what we were to what we are be- will become and what we are becoming today. And we're, we wrestle, right? We wrestle with these things because we know what the scriptures say and we know what the Holy Spirit's wanting, but then we know just how far we have to go and it's, it can be discouraging and frustrating and it comforts my heart. And I hope it comforts yours to know that the one who started this work in me is not gonna stop until it's finished. He's not gonna stop until it's finished. And so we can be sure that there's truth in verse 28, that God is causing all things in your life, things that he himself is doing, things that he has permitted someone, another agent to do in your life. Because there is God's permissive will. He allows other things to take place. It's within his providential sovereignty. He oversees all things. He's super, and superintending things. Things are going his direction. But in the process, he permits other things to happen. But you can be sure that he is working so that all those things are serving his purpose for your life to conform you into the image of the Son. Your holiness is what God is after in your life. He knows you suffer. He knows you go through hard times. He knows that in this world you, find, you will find tribulation and trouble, and yet he permits it for a reason. There's purpose in it all. Peter says the same thing. Yes, God foreknew you, God chose you in the very next breath in the same verse and his spirit has made you holy. 
God fulfills what he intends. He completes what he starts. Paul is certain in Philippians 1, 6, that God who began a good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He never quits and he never gives up on you. There is purpose in God's designs. Secondly, in the next few verses, 31 through 34, we see that Christ's work on the cross assures us of these things. There's assurance in the work of Jesus. Last week in verse 16, Paul said kind of the same thing, but not about the Son. He said it about the Spirit. He says his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So there's, there's assurance and affirmation from the third person of the Trinity to our hearts. But here he's saying there's, a, there's another assurance from the second person of the Trinity. And, and back in verse 16, Paul was talking about the, the direct inward witness where the Spirit of God comes to us on the inside and speaks truths to our hearts and words that, that our hearts can understand that, that we can know from the inside out that we belong to God as his sons and daughters. But, but here, he's going to supplement this direct inward witness with another dimension of Christian assurance, and that is the external witness of the objective work of Christ. Now, I had preached on uh, the inner witness of the Spirit a number of years ago, and after the service, uh, one, of, one of you came up to me, and um, just were, you were expressing to me just the, the burden that you felt because you didn't feel you didn't feel the Spirit's witness in your heart. And, and I'm pretty confident that that person's experience is, is not entirely uncommon. I'm sure there are others of you who at times you, you felt like there was a, a, something on the inside lacking that, that confirmation that you need or there was maybe a doubt that had crept up into your heart or maybe you, f- you sense another voice telling you other truths and, and you were conflicted and, and felt burdened by that. And, and it's true, there are times when we don't feel certain things. And yes, God speaks directly to our hearts, without a doubt, but, but the human person is, is a complex thing, and we're, we're broken people, and there's, there's lots of complexity to, to our lives, and there's a million reasons why you and I might not feel a certain thing or, or hear a certain thing. And, and, and you uh, husbands out there, just ask your wives about this phenomenon. They know all too well what it's like to say something plainly, to someone else who just doesn't get it. It happens. I saw a few elbows like that. But it's comforting to me that know that, to know that God never intended for us to rely exclusively on just the inward witness to truth. Yes, we're grateful for the Spirit's internal witness, and it's perfectly, <laughs> that witness is perfectly sufficient. But it's always accompanied by the external witness of the work of Christ on the cross and vice versa. Just God doesn't expect you to just rely on your feelings or what you sense on the inside. He gives you something objective to ground your faith in, to ground the truth in that you can behold with your eyes and hear with your ears as it's proclaimed to your life. How can I be sure that God is in control, that God is at work, that God intends good things for my life, even when I don't feel these truths on the inside for whatever reason? Well, look at verse 32. He didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. You may not feel loved this morning by God. You may not feel assurance 
You may feel a lot of things, but you can look at verse 32 and know that God gave his son for you. How can I have hope amidst challenges and hardships when my world is falling apart, when nothing seems certain, when glory seems like some distant fading hope? Well, look at verse 34. Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us. He is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. For the times when you don't feel it, the scriptures still declare it. God is for you. God is for you. In whatever you're facing today, and it might be you're in a situation where you are the, the, the un, undeserving recipient of someone else's poor decisions, or perhaps even evil in this world, or maybe just some sort of natural thing that's going on that has caused you distress or, or uncertainty or discomfort, or maybe it's producing fear in your life, or maybe you are going through something right now that is the result of your own decisions. Maybe you've made one bad decision after another, and you've dug yourself a hole so deep you feel like you can never find your way out of there. What is the hope in that situation? God is for you. God is for you. God is for you, and you may not feel it, but if you could only see and hear it this morning, he is for your life. He, there's design, there's purpose, and there's intentionality for you. We can see it every time we look to the cross. It's upon these truths that we must fix our eyes regardless of how we feel. Letting the Spirit control your mind, Paul says back in verse 6, what does that lead to? It leads to life and peace. And what does the Spirit always do in his ministry to us? He directs the mind to Christ. It's amazing. Jesus came, died, rose again, and ascended that he might send you the gift of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes and abides within that he might direct your mind to Christ. So that God, in all of his work in your life, is pointing you to the truth that he is for you. Always. Even when you don't feel it, you can know it. And know this, thirdly, in the last few verses here, 35 through 39. Know that there is nothing but overwhelming victory for you. Man, that... That seems like a very out-of-reach promise at times, doesn't it? That overwhelming victory is ours. Now, in case you may have missed it over these recent weeks, or maybe if you've been here for many months or years, um, it's possible that through all that time you've missed this fact, and for that it's okay. You don't have to feel bad, but know, it, know this this morning. We, in this church, and in this denomination, and in our larger theological tradition, we are very optimistic about what God can do in this life by his grace. We hold God's grace in very high regard. I hope you have sensed that out of our uh, articulation of the truths from Romans chapter 8 these last few weeks, and throughout the preaching ministry and teaching ministry of this church for many years to come, before, even before I was here. I hope you have sensed that and are imbibing that reality, that we are optimistic about what God can do by his grace in this life. We believe that there is a holiness. There is a, now don't get scared off. There is a perfection, that's a biblical term, 
there is a holiness and a perfection that is attainable and even expected for the Christian. We actually believe that. But it's not a a perfection of performance where we sort of arrive, you know, I'm perfect, (laughs) therefore I have arrived. And we can go stroll around and think think all haughty of ourselves. No, it's actually quite the opposite of that. The closer you get to Jesus and the more like him you become, the more you are acutely aware of just how far you have to go. And those of you who have lived for a lot longer than than I and have walked with Jesus longer than I and have walked more closely with him than I know that far more than I. That the closer you are to him and even the more like him he makes you, the more you realize how how far you have to go. it's, It's almost like a paradox. We see this in Paul, by the way. It's actually kind of funny. Every time I return to this, I, I kind of get a little chuckle. In Galatians 1, 1, Paul is trying to establish his, you know, his apostleship. He's, he wants everyone to know there in the churches that he's writing to that he too is an apostle. I am, I am equal to those guys. And so what does he say in the very first verse? This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised him from the dead. I am an apostle. Seven years later, as Paul was composing his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. And then about eight years later, when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 3, verse 8, he refers to himself as the least of all God's people. And then, near the end of his life, as he composed 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 15, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. It's fascinating, isn't it? What's going on here? Is Paul sort of walking backwards in his journey of faith? Is the effect of of decades of ministry and walking closely with Jesus that he's becoming farther and farther from, from where God is leading him? Is he becoming less like Jesus? I mean, he's an apostle. Well, the least of the apostles, well, actually the least of all God's people. Actually, I'm the worst sinner there ever was. Is he regressing? Or is there a humility that is commensurate with one's true growth in grace? Look, Paul, Paul, who's talking about these things, would never suggest that there's a moment in this life where we arrive, where there's nothing further that God can do in your heart, that there's no, that you're somehow so above sin that it's not even a possibility in your life anymore. That's never what the scriptures teach. And that's not what Paul's testimony is about himself. And yet at the same time, he's saying, but there is a holiness of heart. There is a perfection of love, all by a supernatural work of God's grace in my life, that is available to us today. There is an entirety of sanctification. And it's not one of degree 
where you reach this point where you, you've become as holy as you possibly could become, it's not a matter of degree, it is one of scope, an entirety of scope, where God's sanctifying grace doesn't just touch part of your life, but the totality of who you are. It is all touched by it. It's all transformed by it. He has all of you, not just part of you. You give him all, you consecrate all of yourself to him. You can have my mind and my heart and my soul and my strength and my will and my family and my future. Jesus, you can have everything of me. I've given you to this date 95% of myself, but I've kept this little bit for me. No, that his grace wants to touch that. Moment by moment. And as you grow and as you live life and as your, your person is, is maturing and growing and new things come into your life and new dimensions of who you are come into being, well, you can give those to him too. And there's a, an entirety to his work of grace for you right now. He wants all of you now. He wants to touch all of you now with his grace today. We believe and we champion this biblical truth here and we must never apologize for it. But, there is a but. <laughs> to bring things full circle to where we started three weeks ago, there is a final sanctification that does not belong to the present. There is a finality, a, a consummation that we have to wait for. And while the Spirit gives us a foretaste of it, He doesn't give us its entirety. We're moving towards the not yet. And in that journey, in the meantime, the world and the flesh and the devil are conspiring to convince, to convince us that God's love displayed on the cross and shed abroad on our hearts and witnessed directly to us from the inside out isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And these forces are tirelessly at work with the singular goal in mind of driving a wedge between you and God and your certain hope of glory. That is what you are dealing with in this life. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. There are, there are principalities at work in this world. There are forces at work in this world to convince you that what you know is not true. That what God wants you to become can never happen. That you are going to stumble and fall and not make it to the end. And I just want to tell you, friends, in the name of Jesus Christ and, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, hear the word of God in verse 38 here this morning. Nothing in this world can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing. You will face trouble. You will face calamity and disaster. You will be persecuted. You will be hungry. You will be destitute. You will face danger and even death. But none of these things, Paul tells us in verse 37, none of them mean that God doesn't love you. That's the temptation, isn't it? That when we go through a hard time, our first instinct, for whatever reason, is to say, oh, God, God's unhappy with me, or God doesn't love me, or whatever. And Paul's saying, no. You may have even brought hardship upon yourself. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. You can be certain because God's designs originate before time and because he assures us through his son and his spirit that despite difficult circumstances and powerful forces at work, overwhelming victory is ours. The Greek word for victory there or to prevail, it's a verb, is vakeo, 
Will you say that with me? Vikeo. One more time. Vikeo. It means to conquer, to prevail. But what's beautiful in this verse is that it, it's a compound verb. Paul takes the, the Greek preposition hooper, that's a fun word, and sticks it to the front. So it's not just vikeo, it's hooper vikeo. You want to say that? Hooper vikeo. Oh, come on, that's pathetic. Come on. Hooper vikeo. What does hooper mean? It means above. It means over. It means beyond. In other words, we exceedingly prevail. We exceedingly conquer. We are super victors. There's nothing in this world that can overtake you. There is no sin. There is no enemy. There is no power or principality. There is no challenge in this life for which his grace is insufficient for you. In him, we are more than conquerors. His love at work for us and his love at work in us is always enough. Now at this church, we will never affirm some sort of automatic, inevitable perseverance. Do you hear me? We do not affirm an automatic, mechanical, impersonal, inevitable perseverance. We take seriously the the calls of the New Testament to respond to grace in trusting obedience. That ongoing faith, not just faith once upon a time, you know, at an altar somewhere or in your bedroom or at a camp where you believed one time and you you punch your ticket and you're good. No, ongoing faith is the continuous necessity and condition for receiving the grace of God. We take seriously the warnings all throughout the New Testament against turning away and making shipwreck of our faith. The only security that there is in this world is in Christ. When we are continuously in Christ, that's your security. It's true that he mentions a lot of things here. Nothing in this world, he mentions all things. But the one thing he doesn't mention is our own apostasy. That's one thing that is not mentioned there because that is the one thing that can become between you and God. He said just a few verses prior that letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to what? Bad times? Difficulties? Struggles? No, death. You have a choice. You can let the, the flesh control your mind or the spirit control your mind. One leads to death, one leads to life. And so we must continuously crucify the flesh. That's what we said last week. We have a part to play in response to what he has done and what he is doing. We're not just automatons where he has flicked a switch and everything just happens. We are persons who are invited into a relationship, a covenant of love. And we have a part to play in this covenant. And we don't do it very well. (laughs) And we're going to fail a million times. And there's always grace for that, but we still have a part to play. But let us never miss the incredible promises found here and elsewhere about the keeping power of God's love. There's keeping power. Love that never fails. He is 100% able to see us through. He provides everything that we need. Everything. He is committed to his loving designs and purposes for our lives. And so it is simply ours to what? 
Well, to choose. To choose moment by moment to respond in every circumstance we find ourselves, in every new thing that the Holy Spirit reveals to our lives. Ours is to respond in faith. It is, it is salvation by grace through faith from beginning to end. Not once, but always. Will you respond in faith today? Will you trust in the, the goodness and the designs and the assurance and the power of God? Will you trust? Will you obey? Will you walk in the steadfast love of God this morning? Love that saves, love that sanctifies, and love that is able to bring you from beginning to glorious end. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for these marvelous truths. Oh, how vast is the everlasting love of God. Oh, how great and precious is our Redeemer's blood. Oh, how deep the measure of the Spirit's work. The everlasting love of God shall ever be our song. Lord, we, we sing it here, but not just with, with our voices and our lips. Lord, we sing it in our hearts. We sing it with our choices, with our decisions, with all of our actions. Lord, everything that we are and everything we do, we want it to be about your love. And we can't do it on our own, and, and many of us have tried, and we always fail. But Lord, you provide all that we need. You take your own love and you shed it abroad in our hearts. These hearts that are stony and stubborn and, and dead. And you take them and you, you, you break all the crust off and you, you soften and they become not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. And you, you breathe life, true life. And you, your grace doesn't just do something for us. It's doing something inside of us. And it's, it's, it's working moment by moment to change us from the inside out that we wouldn't be what we were when we first came to you. But that would be changing from one degree to the other into the conformity of the image of the Son. You are making us holy today. Lord, would you make me holy? <laughs> would you touch my heart? Would you take my heart that is so prone to wandering and, and bind it to your own? Would you take my heart that's so easily divided and make it whole? Would you take my double-mindedness and unify it around your mind and your will Lord, we believe you can do these things because your commands are your promises. So Lord, do these works in our lives, even ours this morning. Help us to believe that these things are true, even of me. That they're not just ideas or things to wish for or believe that might happen to someone else. These are promises to my life. Lord, may we believe that today and trust in that today. And I can't wait to see what you produce as a result of that. Thank you, God, for your good and precious and perfect promises. May we be a people who believe them and live into them in fullness today. Thank you that all the things that are you're doing in our lives are working towards that end.
for our holiness and for your glory. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.